In the justice system, crimes are investigated and tried by the government with two distinct sides. The prosecution, which represents the state, and the defense, who represents the accused. During his 60-year career, attorney Mike Fowler has been on the front lines of both sides. These are his stories. I'm Lamar White Jr. of the Bayi Brief, and on this episode of Combat in the Courtroom, Mike Fowler recalls his defense of a federal judge in Mississippi, a story that involves thousands in oil profits, a private island, and literally a ton of marijuana. It's 1985. Sitting Governor Edwin Edwards is on trial in New Orleans. Mike Fowler is there defending a co-defendant of Edwards. While I was representing Phil Brooks in the first Edwin Edwards case, I got a call. Somebody who was calling on behalf of Judge Walter Nixon, who was the chief judge in the Southern District of Mississippi, asking me if I'd be interested in representing him. There'd been an indictment charged against him. And I said, you know, that I was interested Walter Nixon was a very well-respected federal judge. He had been a successful civil tort lawyer in the Southern District of Mississippi on the Gulf Coast. For the most part, I think he was focused in Biloxi. His father had been a fairly well-known political figure. There's a bridge that if you go from I-10 to the Gulf Coast, you go over the Walter Nixon Senior Bridge. Walter Jr., though, was famous in his own right, being the youngest judge on the federal bench when he was appointed by LBJ in 1968. Now, in 1985, Nixon presides as the chief judge of the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Mississippi. When the news broke that Walter L. Nixon Jr., a sitting federal court judge, was indicted, all of Mississippi knew the name. This would be the second time ever in American history that a sitting federal judge stood on trial. Of course, everybody in Mississippi, every judge, had recused themselves. In fact, everybody in the Fifth Circuit had recused themselves. Nixon had been nominated or was asked if he wanted to go on the Fifth Circuit, and he had turned it down. He said he prefers staying on the district bench as a chief judge. Since none of the judges in the Fifth Circuit could sit in the case, The chief judge of the Fifth Circuit sought out a judge outside the district to sit ad hoc in this case. And there was a judge named James Meredith. My recollection, he may have been, he was so old, he was appointed, I think, by Truman. He was from St. Louis. He was old and he was ill. He was on dialysis treatment, which is one of the reasons that the case was tried in Hattiesburg, which is part of the Southern District. And candidly, a lot of the events occurred in that general area. But Hattiesburg had a hospital in which the judge could get his weekly dialysis treatments. In August of 1980, a private plane flies into Hattiesburg, Mississippi. On board was some precious cargo, 2,200 pounds of marijuana. The DEA forces the plane down, arresting everyone involved. Indicted, along with two others, was a man named Drew Fairchild. Facing federal and state charges, Drew turned to his father, 
Wiley Fairchild, a bank director, construction magnate, and local philanthropist. Wiley gets involved in his son's case. Eventually, Drew reaches a deal with federal prosecutors while still facing possible state charges from prosecutor Bud Holmes. Bud Holmes would eventually move Drew's case into the inactive files, essentially dropping the case. Through an anonymous tip, the government was advised that Nixon had received some interest in some oil and gas leases for an amount far less than what it was worth. And Nixon had made, let's say, five times the, I think he invested $10,000 and they made 50000 60000 on the investment. And so they started looking into that. And it turned out these oil and gas leases, as I say, was sold to him by this man, Wiley Fairchild. Well, Wiley Fairchild, at the same time, had a son who was involved in smuggling weed into the country, bringing it in by airplane. A group of people, he and several others, were indicted when the DEA intercepted a flight that came in loaded with weed. And this case was pending in the state court. And so the thought was that in some way, because Nixon was friendly with Holmes, that perhaps Wiley had paid off Nixon in an effort to get some benefit for his son in the drug case. The Department of Justice already had an eye out for Judge Nixon because of a 1981 case involving the Petty Boy Island off of the Mississippi-Alabama coast. When the federal government decided to protect the barrier island and include it in the Gulf Islands National Seashore, it was first required to pay private property owners a fair market value, in this case, a group of investors. The investors acquired the land, a little more than 700 acres worth, for $100 cash and a $1.7 million note. The government believed it was only worth $330,000. So when Judge Nixon ruled that the land was actually worth $9 million, a huge windfall, the feds were more than a little suspicious. Now, with this anonymous tip about Nixon trying to get a sweetheart deal for Wiley Fairchild's son, a new investigation went into motion. Judge Nixon was represented by a civil attorney, someone unfamiliar with criminal defense and unprepared for the full bore of the federal government. So Nixon went to the grand jury Goodwin didn't object. If it was me, I would have barred the grand jury door, not letting Nixon go near the grand jury, particularly since he was, as I say, the target. But in all fairness, Nixon wanted to testify, wanted to clear his name, and it was most likely difficult to talk him out of it. In the grand jury, he was questioned about this oil and gas lease, explained the position, and he was asked then questions about his conversations with Wiley Fairchild and with Bud Holmes relating to the Wiley Fairchild's son's drug case. He came through the direct examination pretty well. At the end of it, the government prosecutor named Reed Weingarten, who ultimately was my adversary in the trial, said to Judge Nixon, Judge Nixon, do you have anything else to say? At which point, 
Nixon pulled out a prepared statement and it was what was said ultimately in that prepared statement which became the subject of certain counts in the indictment. The indictment that came down were four false statement counts, two involving statements made to Wiley Fairchild, two involved statements made to Bud Holmes about the Fairchild aspect of the case. With the trial imminently approaching, Nixon learned that his attorney was attempting to strike a plea bargain, which infuriated him. There was no way Judge Walter Nixon would plead guilty to anything. Enter Mike Fowler. For a well-known figure like Judge Nixon, voir dire would take time. I had moved up to Hattiesburg to get ready. We moved. I and Herb Larson, who was my associate at the time, very bright, he was there, Flamatoire, my paralegal, and the three of us were the team that were going to try the case. I also had a jury selection expert, Susie McPherson, who worked with us on the case. There was a very lengthy voir dire, which, as I recall, took place not in the courthouse, but since Nixon was so well known, Everybody understood it would take some time to get a jury. And so it was held at like a VA hall in Hattiesburg. Due to a lack of space inside the real courtroom, the Civic Center will be used while attorneys attempt to narrow down the 120 potential jurors to the final 12. Those remaining will undergo more intense questioning with questions about pre-trial publicity surrounding the case and questions about whether they know any of the witnesses who are likely to testify at this trial. Also, a Purvis woman was excused after admitting she thought Nixon was, in her words, probably guilty. When she admitted to having already formed an opinion in the case, defense attorney Mike Fowler moved to excuse her immediately, saying, quote, if we spend even only 12 seconds on her, that's 12 seconds wasted. The prosecutor, Reed Weingarten, who has objected to Fowler's lengthy interviews with jurors, said, I find it very interesting you're talking about wasting time. Mike battled Weingarten throughout the trial. The opposing counsel was Reed Weingarten, and he and I fought like cats and dogs throughout the trial, at the bench, in the courtroom, whatever. Reed was a very good attorney. Uh, I mean, it was almost humorous at times. The judge, the further he got away from his dialysis, the more comatose he would get while he was on the bench. There were times that Reed Weinarten and I would, almost came to blows at the bench in front of the judge, but the judge paid no attention because he was out of it. He most likely was five days away from his last dialysis treatment, and when he was in that state, he was just totally comatose. The defense would rely on refuting the prosecution's witnesses to prove their case. The trial itself was hard fought. It turned out that Wiley Fairchild and Bud Holmes were under excruciating pressure to incriminate Nixon. There was a potential that the federal government was holding over Wiley's head the fact that they could bring a federal suit against his son in addition to the state case, the drug case that was at the heart of this investigation. In any event, Wally Fairchild 
got on the stand and basically testified in accordance with a script that he admitted had been written for him by Reed Weingarten. But Holmes, on the other hand, had no problem throwing his best friend, Walter Nixon, under the bus. Good evening. Former Forest County District Attorney Bud Holmes was on the stand for the entire day at the trial of U.S. District Judge Walter Nixon Jr. today as the defense repeatedly tried to punch holes in his story about the date and the content of an alleged telephone call made from his farm. Ed Bryson has details. Bud Holmes testified that after the FBI investigation began, Nixon wanted to know if that phone call from Holmes' farm had been taped. Holmes said later on, Nixon acted like he didn't know anything about the phone call, and once at a party, Nixon said, I don't know why you picked up the phone and called Wiley Fairchild. Holmes says it was Nixon who made the phone call. On cross-examination, Holmes admitted that part of the reason he agreed to prosecute Drew Fairchild to transfer that case from federal court to state court was that he, Holmes, thought that that might help his friend Bill Porter, who was Drew Fairchild's attorney, get paid for his legal services to Drew. Holmes also admitted that federal prosecutors offered not to indict him if he would, quote, give them Judge Nixon. Bud Holmes was a district attorney for Forest County, Mississippi, when Drew Fairchild was arrested. His testimony about when he received phone calls and what they were about was the linchpin of Neil Weingarten's case. There's absolutely nothing favorable that I could ever say about Bud Holmes. I think he lied to save his own skin in the case because I think he saw that they could possibly indict him for perjury in the grand jury. I think he had gone to the grand jury on several occasions in the case and had told inconsistent stories to the grand jury. What happened is that Bud Holmes basically created a conversation which incriminated Nixon that had never really taken place. Bud Holmes was a totally immoral perjurer from my perspective. On one occasion, I remember, he threatened to indict Wiley's son on the state level, even though there already had been an agreement on the federal level, unless his friend, an attorney named Porter, who had represented the son, got paid a certain amount of money. And Wiley Fairchild was pressured to pay that money at the same time. The last section of cross-examination of Judge Nixon was intense. Prosecutor Reed Weingarten asked Nixon why he never contacted the federal government to say that that telephone call incident was only a terrible misunderstanding. Nixon said, if you had wanted me to come back to the grand jury, you could have subpoenaed me. You didn't do that because you were intent on indicting me come hell or high water. Weingarten, did you volunteer to come back and explain? Nixon said, no. Weingarten said, and yet after you knew Bud Holmes pleaded guilty to lying to the grand jury for covering up that phone call, your attorney went to Washington to the Justice Department on several occasions. Nixon agreed. Moving on, Weingarten asked, would it be proper for a federal judge to influence a state prosecutor to go easy on a drug smuggler because the judge had a business relationship with the smuggler's father? Defense attorney Mike Fowler objected, saying, Judge, what does this have to do with this case? It can't be that it's a description of the crime that is alleged. Weingarten shot back, everything, Your Honor. Weingarten asked the question again, would that be proper? Nixon, is that a hypothetical question? Weingarten, 
Is it, Judge? Isn't that exactly what you did in this case? Despite more objections from Fowler, Nixon answered, You know I didn't. That is a lie. Nixon testified he was not a particularly good witness, gave off an aura of sort of arrogance and somewhat of a holier-than-thou sense to the jury. He testified that he had no such conversation, but despite that, they had the testimony of Bud Holmes. There was nothing else in the case that really could incriminate him but Bud Holmes's testimony. And of course, Bud Holmes was this so-called best friend of Walter Nixon. After one week of jury selection and two full weeks of testimony, the trial of Judge Walter Nixon Jr. is coming to an end. The seven-man, five-woman jury will begin tomorrow to try to decide if Nixon is guilty or innocent. The jury would be sent to deliberate on four charges against Judge Nixon. Count one, an illegal gratuity or bribe based on the sale and profits of the oil and gas lease. Count two, that he had lied about a conversation regarding Drew Fairchild's case with Wiley Fairchild to the grand jury. And counts three and four charge that Judge Nixon lied to the grand jury about conversations he had with Bud Holmes regarding Drew Fairchild's case. On count one, the jury announced they found him not guilty. Count two, which was another conversation with Wiley Fairchild, again, they found him not guilty. I sort of began to feel like I was in a plane soaring into the sky. The third and fourth counts involved his conversations, his, Nixon's conversations with Bud Holmes, and he was found guilty on each of those, and that made me feel like I just had crashed in an airplane. The irony is that the underlying crime, namely the ostensible bribe of Nixon by Wiley Fairchild, he was acquitted of. What you had in the long run is some finding of false statements, alleged false statements by Nixon, which flowed out of a statement he voluntarily gave to the grand jury, which he didn't have to if he just kept his mouth shut. 57-year-old Walter Nixon Jr. was, in a word, devastated by the verdict. When Judge James Meredith read not guilty on the first two counts, the illegal gratuity and one perjury charge, defense attorney Mike Fowler put his arm around his client, obviously hoping for more good news. But then, guilty as charged was read on the last two counts. Judge Nixon cried, looked over at his family, who also cried loudly. He put his head down on the table. Judge Meredith said the family would have to be quiet or leave the courtroom. The jury was then polled individually. Some had tears in their eyes, and then with his attorneys on each side of him, Nixon walked to the courtroom door, his legs unable to carry his weight at one point. For the first time in U.S. history, a sitting federal judge was found guilty after one trial. Guilty of two counts of perjury, one for lying to the grand jury when he denied discussing Drew Fairchild's case with Bud Holmes, and for lying to the grand jury when he denied having anything whatsoever to do with Drew Fairchild's case. Defense attorney Mike Fowler said he was shocked by the verdict. He said he would appeal. I do not know how anyone can understand a verdict in which the only underlying wrongdoing the man is totally acquitted of. 
I'm saddened by the verdict because I think that the, an excellent jurist is no, is, is stands here convicted of something that he had never done. I think he is a victim of circumstance. I think the press in all candor is most likely surprised at this verdict as I am. Prosecutor Reed Weingarten said this is not a happy moment for anyone. Nobody's going to celebrate about this verdict. It's an unhappy event. Nevertheless, we're satisfied that the case had to be brought, and we're satisfied justice was done. Nixon faces a maximum sentence of five years for each of the two perjury charges, plus $20,000 in fines. Nixon will remain a federal judge despite his conviction unless the United States Congress acts to impeach him, or, of course, should he resign. Nixon is scheduled to be sentenced on March 31st. The sentencing hearing of Judge Nixon would be over a month after the verdict. But Mike was already at work defending Governor Edwin Edwards and his retrial on racketeering charges stemming from nursing home developments. And there was a break in the second trial. And we, at that time, went up to Hattiesburg to have a hearing on a motion for new trial. The basis of our new trial is that we had had some investigation done and uncovered the fact that Holmes's dating of the critical phone call was a year off. Mike would explain that the defense discovered portions of Bud Holmes's testimony did not line up. Two critical events from Bud Holmes's testified timeline, a hunting trip and a bar fight between Holmes's girlfriend and another woman, could be shown to have occurred a full year later than Holmes claimed on the stand. During the hearing at one point, it was somewhat comical in hindsight. The, the, we had a break in the testimony. Judge Meredith called us back into his chambers just to sit around and schmooze a bit. This is back in the days where people even smoked in courthouses. And the judge invariably would smoke a cigarette and you'd sort of watch him because the ashes, he, he wouldn't use an ashtray, and then the ashes would sort of fall on his tie, and he was semi-out of it most of the time. Anyway, we're talking. After about 10 minutes of sitting around, Reed, Weingarten, myself, perhaps Herb Larson, the judge, and the judge's law clerk, the judge turned to his law clerk and said, all right, it's time, put the jury back in the box. Reed and I looked at each other, like, what did he just say? There was no jury. It was just him. In any event, he denied our motion, and that ended that. After sentencing, Mike would have a talk with Judge Nixon. I felt very passionate about the case. Uh, the whole trial was left a very sour taste in my mouth. It's, it's not like I hadn't lost cases in the past. I just thought that the government knowingly suborned perjured testimony in the case in an effort to get even with Judge Nixon for what they thought was an unreasonable judgment in the civil petty boy case. I felt so strongly about the case and felt so personally involved, I suggested to Judge Nixon that somebody other than I handle the appeal. Someone could be more objective about the case. And I suggested he hire John Reed, a very talented attorney, particularly in the appellate level. And Nixon followed my recommendation, hired John Reed. And despite his talent and an excellent brief, the Fifth Circuit affirmed the decision. 
and the Supreme Court refused to take certiorari from the Fifth Circuit, and Judge Nixon then served 20 months of a 60-month sentence, and, subs and later on went back to practicing law. Haven't seen him since. This is where Mike exits the story, but it's not the ending. If you ask most lawyers to explain what happened in Nixon v. United States, they'll likely tell you about Richard Nixon, Watergate, and the infamous Oval Office secret tapes. But it's a trick question. That was United States versus Nixon. Nixon versus the United States was about a Mississippi judge who was found guilty of lying to cover up his own innocence. And then, for only the second time in American history, was impeached and then convicted by Congress. Reed Weingarten resurfaces in other notable cases. He's now a trial lawyer in Washington, D.C. In 2019, he represented President Donald Trump during the Mueller investigation, as well as Jeffrey Epstein. There's more details of the story in Mike's book, From the Bronx to the Bayou, available online at bronxtothebayou.com and Amazon in hardcover, paperback, and ebook. If you're in New Orleans, it's available at Octavia Books and Blue Cypress Bookstore. I'm Lamar White Jr. of the Bayou Brief. On behalf of myself and my producer, Ben Collinsworth, thanks for listening.